you would please turn to your Bibles to Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. If you're visiting with us this morning or haven't been here lately, we've been working our way through this letter called Philippians. It was written by a man named Paul, who was a leader over churches, a church planner, you might say. It was written to Christians in a city named Philippi. Paul and his friends had preached the message of Jesus there, and some came to believe in Jesus. So a church, a small community of believers was formed, and Paul's writing now, years later, to encourage them, to strengthen them. They may have been going through some trials because of their faith, persecution, suffering. And so Paul wanted to encourage them and challenge them to press on for the sake of the gospel. Press on. Don't give up. Don't give in. Keep going. Press on all the way to the end, all the way until you cross the finish line. Last few weeks we've considered what it means for us Christians to be united together. Look back uh, to verses 3 through 11 of chapter 2, what we've looked at over the past few weeks. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And then we come to our couple of verses for this morning, so follow along as I read Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In these two verses, they're jam-packed with meaning. In these two verses, Paul stirs up the Philippians to take seriously their responsibility for Christian obedience. He motivates them, though, not by threatening or by warning, but he motivates them by the gospel. And he reminds them of who it is that's at work in them. That's what this text means for us, too. We, as Christians, must take seriously our responsibility to live obediently to God. Our motivation for doing so is that Jesus came and died to save us and to make us part of His people. And we strive for obedience. And as we do so, we can be sure that God is working in us this obedience. We can be sure that God is working in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. We'll look at this passage in three parts. First, we'll consider just the command. You know, we've talked about imperatives an indicative's imperative is a command. You do this. An indicative is what is true, a statement of fact about who you are or about what is true. 
So first we'll consider the command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Second, we'll look at the indicative, the statement of truth. It is God who works in you. And then third, we'll look at how God does this, or in what, what, what God is working in us, namely, to will and to work for His good pleasure. So first, look at how Paul frames this command in verse 12. The first word there is, therefore, or so then. This means that these two verses are linked back to the previous ones. It's linked back to all that Paul has just said about Jesus. He poured himself out for sinners. He humbled himself so that we sinners could be lifted up. And this, friends, is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel, of course, means good news. And the good news of Jesus is the message that He came into the world to save sinners. See, we wreck the world with our sin. God created the world in beauty and in majesty, and we have marred His good creation by disobeying Him. It's become an ugly place because of what we have done to it. But it's not just that we've messed up His good creation. There's something far worse than that, and it's that we have broken God's law and offended Him personally. We have transgressed against what He has commanded us. And because of that, we deserve to die. Now, this is not good news, right? This is not gospel. This is bad news. If the story ended here, we would be miserable, as we should be. Life would be meaningless, and it would only end in torment. The good news of God is that He loved the world, this broken world, that He loved these rebellious people in this way. He sent His Son Jesus to pay the price for our disobedience, to pay the fine for our punishment. Jesus gave the Father great pleasure by uh, completely obeying His law, by doing everything that He wanted, and then He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners like us. And as we'll celebrate in a couple weeks, He rose again from the dead, proving that He had accomplished what He intended to, proving that He had done what He said He would do and that He was who He said He was, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This is the good news. And Paul says, So then, therefore, because of this, because of what Jesus has done to save you, Strive to live lives of obedience to God. The command itself is this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I think this is related and similar to the command of, in chapter 1, verse 26. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. It doesn't mean that Paul wants them to earn their salvation. He wants them to somehow earn a spot in heaven? No, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to obey Christ in light of what He's already done for them. You are citizens of heaven. Now let your lives show it. Bring your lives into conformity with who you really are. You are children of the Most High God. Now let that show in how you behave. Notice the second part of that, how the Philippians are supposed to do this, how they were supposed to work out their salvation. It says, with fear and trembling. What does that mean? What does it mean to live lives of obedience to God with fear and trembling? 
Paul uses this phrase a few times throughout the New Testament. We get some clues from other places. First, turn back, uh, turn back to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and we'll see one instance. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. There Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. There's our words. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And then in 2 Corinthians 7.15, Paul said that Titus, who was a pastor over the Corinthian church at some time, was grateful for how the Corinthian believers received him. They received him, Paul said, with fear and trembling. And then in Ephesians 6.5-6, Paul tells Christian servants to obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would to Christ not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So from these examples in their context, the way Paul uses this term, this phrase, with fear and trembling, refers to a seriousness of mind, to a reverence of attitude. It means that you, just, you get just how important this is, and you set your mind to it with everything that you've got. All out, all or nothing. When I began to learn how to play the guitar, I was in college. And I wasn't very serious about it. Yeah, I wanted to learn, I wanted to, I wanted to be good, but I didn't want to put in the time it would require to be really, really good. I wanted to play, but I didn't have that commitment. So I practiced some, but of course there were other things I wanted to, to do in college. Study, right? Uh, play sports, hang out with friends. I wanted to, to do other things. So now I can play the guitar, but it's really not that much. There's not much special to it. I can play some chords and some simple songs. And there's a word for what I did with the guitar, right? I piddled with it, right? You've heard that before? Any of you do any of that? Do any piddling? You piddle around with your car, maybe with some tools out in the shed with some crafts or maybe you piddle around with a musical instrument you enjoy doing it but you, you're never able to put enough time into it to be really proficient to be really good there's some who do more than piddle I bet Kim our music leader has done a lot more than just piddle with his guitar right he knows it like the back of his hand he's practiced hour after hour day after day for years so that it could be a good guitar player. One day long ago, he got serious about music. And now it shows. There's something really sad, and that is that many of us here today are just piddling around in Christianity. We, we do want to know enough and do enough to be able to call ourselves Christians. We don't want to get too serious with things, though, right? We don't study the Bible, we just piddle around. We'll look up a verse or two now and then, maybe to get some inspiration. 
We don't want to be challenged in our faith and understanding. We just want to piddle. We, we maybe don't even want to strive and struggle to obey the Bible. If we grow and become more like Jesus, good. If not, that's fine too. But this, friends, is not what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul calls us to this. Jesus calls us to get serious about the conduct of our lives, get serious about our obedience about making our lives match up with what we profess in the gospel. Paul is encouraging us to obey Christ with fear and trembling, with all seriousness, with a reverence. And you know, we shouldn't forget about the context here either. Do you remember? This is in the context of unity, of being together, being unified as a body, as a church. So yes, we should think about what it means for each of us individually to live lives with seriousness in obedience to Christ. But we also need to think about what it would mean for us to get serious about being obedient to build unity in our church, to be together about pressing on together for the message of Jesus. And for us to do that, we have to, we have to be willing to set little trivial disagreements aside for the sake of the mission. We have to be willing to to not just come to church, but to invest in the lives of one another. We must be willing to serve one another, to take those places of, of servanthood and submission to others in order to build up the body of Christ. This will mean thinking of others as more important than ourselves, looking to the interests of others and not to our own. It will mean committing to read Scripture together and praying together. It will mean coming to church that we get serious about growing together. That we're so serious about it, we come as often as we are able to hear the Word of God, to encourage one another, to lift one another up, that we would be more like Christ. But you know, our motivation isn't that we're going to make God happy with us. Our motivation is not that we're going to earn God's favor or earn a spot in heaven. It's not the way it works. Our motivation is the gospel. Our motivation is what Jesus has already done to make us acceptable to God. If we are in Christ, we are already accepted by God. If we are in Christ, we are already forgiven. We're already loved completely by God because of Jesus. Now let's walk in a way that matches that truth and get serious about it. But there's something else that pushes us on in our obedience to Christ. Paul reminds the Philippians of it, and we should remember it too. Look at our text again. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. This is that indicative. This is true. God is at work in you, Christian. Now work out your own salvation. So here's another motivation for our obedience, something that causes us to press on all the more. God is at work in you. This is like a statement, a restatement of what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 6. Look at that. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Underneath all of our striving and all of our working and all of our struggling for obedience, 
is this working of God. He's in the background. Working. We work because He first worked in us. We love because He first loved us. And we continue to work because He continues to work in us. And in fact, since we know that God is working in us, we work all the more. It makes us strive all the harder. We take our responsibilities more seriously because we know that God's working in us. It stirs in us a desire to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Have you noticed how encouraging it is when you know that there are others who are with you and for you as you are working? Maybe you've tackled some huge project at work and you felt like you were all alone and then, all alone and then someone comes in. Saves the day, rescues you, it feels like. When I worked in landscaping and lawn care, our company was responsible for taking care of SAS Business Park. It's a, a huge business park with l lots and lots of grass. We were responsible for caring for. Each of us had a section we were responsible for. It would take us all day, hours and hours, working, it seemed like, all by yourself. Maybe nobody else in sight sometimes. If we finished up at our area, though, we would go on to the edge of another guy's area and begin working, begin working. Sometimes it felt like you were never going to get done. You felt exhausted. You began moving slowly, and just when you wanted to take a break, you'd see one of your buddies come by, and he'd start working on the other end of your area. And that gave you fresh motivation. We're going to be done soon. We're almost done. If I can just keep at it, you get your second wind, and you work harder because you knew somebody was with you and for you. Maybe one of the difficult things about working, for, to working out our salvation and knowing that God is working is that it's hard to see Him. Right? We walk by faith and not by sight. It's not as easy to see as a guy showing up to help. Often God's work is invisible and difficult to see. But according to this passage of Scripture, if you are a Christian, God is at work in you. He is at work in you. No matter how weak you feel, no matter how difficult your struggle, no matter how down in the dumps you may feel, God is working in you. And if we can get this, it has the potential to revolutionize how we see ourselves and one another in the church. When you're working on a puzzle and you're about halfway done, do you look down at it and say, man, that sure is an ugly puzzle? Do you notice all that's wrong with it? All that's missing from it? No. You know that it's a work in progress and you take it for that. It's not done yet. You don't judge a puzzle when it's halfway done. You judge it by what it's going to look like in the end, by the box top. So Christians, we need to see ourselves in one another like this. Instead of judging one another by how we look now, we need to remember what we are becoming in Christ. Instead of focusing on what's missing, our shortcomings, our faults, we should focus on who God is making us and one another to be. We don't judge God's work when it's halfway done. We judge it by what He's making it into. God is working in us. We've been made in God's image. Yes, we've ruined it because of sin, but now you know what? For everyone who is in Christ, He is making you into Christ's image. Jesus is the box top. He's the end result. He's what God is growing us into. So 
Christians, have you realized this? Look at your neighbor right now, if you will. Or look at someone you know is a Christian. Someone you know is a Christian. Yeah, awkward. Okay, go ahead and do it, though. Now, understand this person may not look all that great, right? <laughs> Especially if you're looking at me. <laughs> you, you maybe know some of their faults. You maybe know some of their sins, some of their shortcomings, some of the things that they're, uh, they're struggling with right now. Think about this. God is at work in that person. And He will continue working in this person until every one of those shortcomings are cleaned up until every one of those sins is erased. He's working in that person now and tomorrow, in the days, in the months, in the years to come. And on the last day when Jesus comes back to gather His people, this person will look like Jesus. That is an amazing thought. This is who God is making us into. Like Jesus in holiness and in righteousness and in purity, as 1 John 3, 2 says. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Friends, how do we see one another in the church? Do we see them just for their faults and judge them for what they're not? Or do you see them for who Jesus is making them to be? Or what about yourself, Christian? Do you see how far you've got to go and get depressed forgetting that God is working in you? Remember, He is making us into the likeness of Christ. He's forming us, working in us to make us more like Him each day until the day comes and we will be complete. He's working in us. In the last part of verse 13, Paul tells us how God is working in the lives of believers. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So according to this, God works in believers in these two ways. To will for God's good pleasure and to work for God's good pleasure. To will means desire or, or to want. We could put it like this. God works in believers so that they want to do what, God makes, what makes God happy. God works in believers so that they want to do, that's the, the want to, the will, the desire, so that they want to do what makes God happy. And to work means the ability to carry out this desire. God works to give believers the desires and the ability to please God. So actually, you can see where God is at work. And it's not too difficult to see. You can know when God is at work in your life or in someone else's, and here's how you can tell. Whenever someone desires to please God, God is at work in their life. Whenever someone has a growing desire to make God happy, God is at work in their lives. And whenever you see someone doing the will of God, whenever you see someone obey God's word, that is God working in their life probably heard a kid shout with excitement, I did it! I did it all by myself! Maybe they worked really hard at tying their shoes and they just couldn't get it time after time, practicing over and over until one day, I did it! They're so excited. Maybe they scored a goal and as they 
and how they skipped back to the huddle. As they skipped back onto the field with a big smile and hands raised, they say, I did it. Maybe they cleaned up their place at the table. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe they cleaned up their place at the table and said, I did it. Look, Mom, I did it. And when kids do that, part of the reason they're excited is because they did it. They feel uh, proud of what they have accomplished. But another, another part of the reason they're excited is because they love to feel the pleasure of their parents. They love to see their parents looking on them with favor and with joy. Christians, when we finally get something right, when we finally have the right desires after struggling time after time after time, when we carry out a godly deed, when we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, we can confidently say, I did it, because we did. But we can never say, I did it all by myself. In fact, we know the reason why we did it in the first place was because God worked so that we would want to do it and so that we would have the ability the power to accomplish it. See, when we understand this, we forget our pride and rely instead on God. It's not ultimately our work, but God's. It's not for our glory, but for God's glory. And it's not for our own good pleasure, but for God's good pleasure. When we have godly desires, when we do godly things, we can rejoice and be thankful because we know this. God is working in me. God is doing it. God is changing me. God is growing me. Let me just challenge you here. Can we begin to notice this in others? Can we begin to notice this in one another? That God is at work in willing and working for His good pleasure? Imagine if you got a note from someone saying, you know, I saw what you did last week. How you went out of your way to serve someone else how you humbled yourself so that someone else could be lifted up. And I want you to know that I see God at work in your life. Do you know how encouraging that would be? Why don't you be the one to write that note? To encourage someone else that you see God at work in them. Let's start looking for that in each other. For the work of God in our midst. And we can see it. Wherever we are desiring the will of God, wherever we are doing the will of God, God is at work. As we do this, we can be sure that God the Father looks down on us with favor. We can be sure that if we are in Christ, God's pleasure is shining down on us. Just like the joy of parents over their child, the Father looks down on us Christians and smiles, not because of anything we have done, not because we have earned His smile or His pleasure, only because of Jesus. Do you remember what, Je what God said to Jesus at His baptism? This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. And that never changed throughout His life. He perfectly obeyed the Father. And then He sacrificed Himself on the cross. And temporarily when God looked upon the Son... His anger burned against the Son because of our sin. Because of that, we who are in Christ are now treasured by God. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we are accepted. Because of His death, we are forgiven. 
because of his resurrection, we are raised up to new life. And God looks down on Christians with pleasure. But friends, God is not looking down with pleasure on everyone. By nature, we are all sinners. And because of this, God looks down on every sinful human with anger. If you're not in Christ, His anger still burns against you. He is being patient with you. That will not last forever. One day, Jesus will come back as judge. On that day, God's wrath will be carried out on all who sinned against Him, on all who rebelled against Him and broke His laws. Your only hope, your only rescue is Jesus. He has shielded, He has absorbed the wrath of God when He died on the cross. And the good news of Jesus is that no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how much shame there is in your heart, there is forgiveness in the cross of Jesus. Now He calls on you to receive Him. Turn away from your sins and cast yourself on the mercy of God in Christ. Receive this good news of Jesus and you can be sure that He will no longer look down on you with anger, but He will see you in the end like His Son Jesus. And He will say to every one of His children on that last day, This is my beloved child. With you I am well pleased because of my Son Jesus. Let's pray together and thank Him.